every good movie usually features a villain. That's the main bad guy who's working behind the scenes, controlling everything to fulfill some evil master plan that they have. You can think about the Emperor in Star Wars, you can think about Sauron in Lord of the Rings, or Voldemort in Harry Potter, if you're into Harry Potter. All of these have this, this shadowy evil force that is the puppet master pulling all the strings behind every sub-villain going against the protagonists of these films. And Revelation 13 kind of pulls back the veil and it shows the evil force behind all of the political and social and spiritual dark forces in the world. And that is Satan himself. This is not a work of fiction. This is reality. This is something to take very seriously. Remember, Revelation is about unveiling. It's about revealing. It's about giving us eyes of faith to see the world the way that God sees it from a heavenly perspective, seeing what he cares about and also the way that he interacts with the world and the way that he acts within the world and what it means for his people who are testifying to him in a place that's very hostile in this age. So behind these political, spiritual, and social forces that are aligned against the church is Satan, given to us, symbolized as the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 13, we're going to see that this Satan never creates, but rather he corrupts. He doesn't create, he counterfeits the good creation of God. And he's going to raise up an unholy trinity in the form of two beasts. There's going to be a sea beast and a land beast. And the great hope that Revelation gives is this, that these beastly powers, although they are powerful and they do have authority to inflict damage and they will cause uh, disruption and harm to the church, they cannot ultimately defeat the church because Christ reigns and he will ensure that their blood, the blood of the martyrs, will conquer the beasts. This is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the message of Revelation chapter 13 and really the message of the entirety of this book of prophecy. This is Understanding Revelation. In Revelation chapter 11, we see two witnesses prophesy for 1260 days before they are martyred underneath a beast, this figure that attacks the saints and kills them. Revelation 13 zooms in on that account and expands upon the narrative by introducing Satan, the dragon who's cast out of heaven in Revelation 12 after the ascension of Christ. And when he's cast out of heaven, he receives this small period of time in which he can bring havoc upon the church. And so we're actually going to see what that havoc looks like as he makes war upon the saints of God. And that's what Revelation 13 is focused on. He's going to summon up a sea beast in verses 1 to 10. And from the earth or the land, he's going to summon up a land beast in 11 through 18. And again, this forms an unholy trinity that's going to persecute the church for 42 months or 1260 days or three and a half years or time, times, and half a time. All of these signify a broken week, a time of disruption, but also a time of limited judgment. God's not going to bring the full persecution in which the church would be destroyed, but rather a partial persecution so that the church can endure and know that even though they will suffer for a little while in the present, God is going to deliver them in a spectacular fashion and vindicate them before their enemies. But again, we're going to be looking at these two beasts, one from the sea, one from the land. Let's look at beast number one, the sea beast. Revelation 13 verses 1 and 10. 
1-2-10 rather. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The sea beast forms a composite of both the dragon in Revelation 12 with its ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems, and the four beasts that rise out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7. We see a leopard, a bear, a lion, and then a fourth beast with ten horns. Those are the the succession of beasts that rise out of the sea in Daniel 7. Now, the dragon similarities teach us that Satan is the source of the power and authority behind the beast. The beast mimics its Uh, source the dragon with its heads and its diadems and horns and all these types of things. The Daniel 7 beasts, the imagery there, each rise out of the sea, which represents the Gentiles. And the four Gentile kingdoms in Daniel 7 are rising in succession. You have the lion, which is Babylon, which is conquered by Persia, uh, which is uh, signified by the bear. You have a leopard signifying Greece, which conquers Persia. And then the final beast is Rome, which conquers Greece. So Rome not only ends the succession of kingdoms, but it sums all the kingdoms up. The entire line kind of reaches its apex in the massive Gentile superpower rising out of the sea, which is Rome. So that's what I think the sea beast is. It is representing Rome demonically possessed, sent into a frenzy, attacking the church. And what we see is that this sea beast serves as a caricature of Christ, who receives power, a throne, and authority from his father, the dragon. One of the beast's heads also possesses a mortal wound, healed over, which causes people in the land to marvel and follow him, which mimics the cross and the resurrection, this mortal wound. But it's not quite the resurrection because it's a healed over wound rather than a life from the dead. But you can see there's a mimicry happening. There's a kind of uh, bloodshed that ends up becoming this miraculous beacon for people to worship this beast. Peter Lightheart suggests that this mortal wound symbolizes the assassination of Julius Caesar uh, before Christ was even born, which many thought would end the Roman Empire. But Rome actually continues. So the mortal wound in Caesar's uh, assassination appears to have been healed over. Rome continues on, and that makes people around the world recognize the power of Rome. This could be this divine kingdom, this mighty kingdom never seen before because it can withstand something like the assassination of its ruler. Now, this awe is signified in Rome's uh, ability to garner this kind of praise. And you you see people are saying this. They say, um, who is like the beast? 
Now this mocks the cry of God's people in the Psalms, who is like God, who is like you, O Lord, right? It's a, it's a cry that no one can be your rival. No one can defeat you. So Satan, the father, the dragon is the father. He's given authority and a kingdom and a throne to his quote unquote son, the beast. And he has given him this cross and resurrection uh, parody. And then he gives him praise. The people praise him because he seems to be exalted and powerful and mighty. So again, you see this twisting and paralleling of the Trinity. Now, this beast preaches blasphemy and he exercises authority for 42 months or 1260 days, which identifies him with the beast in Revelation 11, like we said earlier, that persecutes the two olive trees, which represents the church. So this likely identifies the beast with the emperor Nero. Nero persecuted the church for roughly 42 months from 64 AD to his suicide in 68 AD. So it looks like Nero receives satanic power and authority over tribes, people, languages, and nations, which I think is a reference to the Roman Empire, which spanned multiple ethnicities and languages. And Nero has power over Rome to make war on the church, to bring about persecution. And the beast also draws worship to himself. And this might signify the beginnings of the Roman cult of emperor worship, which we start to see later on in uh, centuries past Jesus's time. So Nero is receiving the satanic power And all of this seems to be the end of the church. Nero is uh, bringing the the hammer down upon the church and spilling their blood. But the hope is that God is going to vindicate his martyrs. And the message to the church is clear. Endure and be faithful for your blood will conquer the beast. Don't be afraid when this Roman persecution comes. Remember, in Acts, the main enemy of the church are the Jews. They're the ones who have rejected Christ and they're going against the Jews who've accepted Christ. But now a new enemy enters the scene with even more intensity. Rome goes from being somebody who is sort of neutral to maybe sometimes against the church and sometimes even benefiting the church in Acts to being totally against the church underneath Nero's satanic frenzy against Christians. That brings us to the land beast. That's Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. We have a dragon Satan mimicking the father. We have a sea beast who's his perverted son. And then we need a false spirit to complete this unholy trinity. And that's what we get in these verses. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So the land beast appears like a lamb with two horns, but speaks like a dragon. He speaks the words of Satan. He is a false prophet, and he points people to worship the beast of Rome. He's Rome's propaganda man. 
The false prophet performs true signs with a false message. He brings Elijah-like fire from heaven, but then tells people of a false death and resurrection by pointing to the mortal wound, the narrative of the beast who was wounded by a sword yet lived. He also breathes life into an image of the beast, like the spirit breathed life into Adam, the image of God. Some commentators identify the land beast with the corrupt priesthood of Israel and the image as the temple. The temple, once filled with God's spirit, now breathes the lies of a satanic spirit. The temple, which was once a mark of God dwelling with his people because of uh, Israel's rejection of Christ, has now become a mark of the beast. And what we start to see here is the alliance, the Jew-Gentile alliance between pagan Rome and the corrupt priesthood. And this is going to be really important later on as we see the whore of Babylon, and we see the, the, the creature that she's riding upon and all these things related together. Now, this might be kind of strange because this is, this is what, we, what we look at Revelation 4. We want, we, we, re, we want to read about beasts and dragons and 666 and all this stuff. But how do we get a handle of it? If we understand Revelation to be primarily about events in the first century, how do we find a historical corollary to make sense of these? Because it seems like John assumes his readers are going to understand what he's talking about. Right? The wise are going to be able to discern who he's talking about. So this has to be something within the context of the first century in which they can map out the symbols in a way that makes historical sense. So here's my argument for why the temple could be the mark, or rather the image of the beast. Uh, the temple, again, was meant to be the place where God and man dwell. But Jesus repeatedly in his ministry says the temple is going to be destroyed. The temple has become corrupt. It's a place of money changing, buying and selling, which you would do for the sacrifices. But because of the corruption of the priesthood, those sacrifices that you were meant to buy, which were part of the law, have now become corrupted. That it's a system that's very hollow. And what you see is the kings, like the Herodian kings, who sought to kill Jesus, who were afraid of the Messiah. They're in cahoots with Rome. And you see the Sadducees as well. They've compromised with Rome. And they're compromising their faith. The Pharisees, even though they're enemies with people like Herod and with the Sadducees, they too are corrupt. They have rejected the Christ. They have rejected him as God. And so the very system that seems so religious and upwards toward God in the rejection of Messiah has revealed that they are corrupt, that they are in darkness. And now they are the false prophet. They're the false propaganda man. The, in, the entire uh, system of Israel's worship is now going to be aligned with Rome in an indirect way. And you even think about it with uh, high priest Caiaphas. He's afraid that that the Romans are going to take away their place if this insurrectionist Jesus keeps uh, causing trouble. They're afraid that Rome is going to be angry if they don't deal with their little Jesus problem. And so you can see in the very beginning, even with the crowd calling for Jesus' crucifixion from Pilate, a Roman governor, they're uh, allying, they're hoping that Rome will come to their assistance to deal with this problem. So this alliance was kind of budding. In the Gospels and in Acts, and now it's in full bloom with this false prophet and the beast. So the temple is the image of the beast, pushing people toward worship of Satan, even though they think they're going to the temple of God. What we also see is this mark. What's the mark of the beast? Well, it's important to note that it's on their hand and on their forehead. And Peter Leiter suggests that the mark of the beast are the phylacteries that the Pharisees would wear on their forehead and on their hand. They'd have little pieces of scripture. It's kind of ironic. They have the word of God on them, but they don't understand it because they don't see it in light of Christ. And so this thing that appears to show piety is really marking them out as people who worship the beast. And people who aren't aligned with the Pharisees 
are not going to be able to access the temple. They're not going to be able to do sacrifices. They're going to cut off that ecosystem from them. Now, this leads us to number 666. That's the name of the land beast with, with that number. Now, this number is iconic and may have, <laughs> there's probably as many, uh, there's probably 666 interpretations of this. Um, Alistair Roberts, I think, has a really interesting interpretation. I think he's onto something. The only other time that the number 666, and really it's 666 in the original language in Greek, uh, the only other time that's mentioned is with regard to talents of gold that Solomon receives from the nations, uh, I believe it's in 1 Kings 10, which marks the beginning of his decline. Solomon constructed the temple, he brought Israel into a golden age, but his fall starts because he does the very things that Samuel says the kings shouldn't do. He amasses an army, amasses wealth, and amasses wives. Those are not good things. And him receiving 666 uh, talents of gold is the beginning of him amassing this wealth for himself in an unrighteous way. It's the beginning of the end. Now, I think this might have to do with the Herodian kings that were ruling in Judea at the time. The Herodians were not legitimate heirs to David. They got into their positions through political mischief, and uh, they were very much enemies of Christ. And the Herodians were corrupt in every way. And it seems like they're like Solomon. Herod, uh, one of the Herods, there's a bunch of Herods, one of the Herods built the second temple. He made this glorious, massive kind of structure, but he sold out. He ended up becoming, he's really just a puppet for the Romans. And so he's imitating Solomon in that way. The great architect of the temple is now corrupt by wealth, by greed, and he has turned the temple into a den of thieves. He has become corrupt himself and brought uncleanliness into Israel. So that might be what 666 is referring to. Other people think that 666, if you use a, a special way of understanding Jewish uh Hebrew letters and their the relationship to numbers, it could spell out Nero Caesar or uh, Neron Kaiser, something like that, which is the numerical equivalent of 666 or 666. That's a confusing one. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think the Solomon uh, way of looking at it might be a little more accurate. But just to sum it up, if you guys are maybe lost with all these images, don't, don't fret. I think a picture still clearly emerges. Satan raises an unholy trinity, but they can't defeat the true trinity. Uh, Satan raises an unholy church, a Jew-Gentile alliance, but they can't overcome the true Jew-Gentile alliance of the church, the one new man in Christ. Uh, the beasts are going to conquer. They're going to they're make martyrs out of the people of God, but the irony is it's by their shed blood that they conquer the beasts, by their faithful witness. The temple is corrupt, but God has made a living temple where his spirit dwells in the church. And the mark might prevent Christians from economic peace, from being able to go into the temple, but God has marked them with his seal to preserve them from his judgment and to preserve them as his martyrs. You can see the parallel. God marks out 144,000 to be his faithful witnesses in Revelation chapter 7. And that mark prevents them from following the beast. So one of the things that God does is he says, you're going to be my martyrs. And because you're my martyrs, I'm going to protect you from falling to this false worship. That's kind of the way that God delivers his people. He either delivers them from death or through death. And it's through death that they are highly exalted, just like Jesus. That's what happened with Jesus. He became obedient to the point of death and God highly exalted him and lifted him above every name. And every martyr who dies will be lifted up as well. Nero may be king for now, but Christ 
reigns. Rome may be breathing down the church's neck, but it's all under the sovereign plan of God. And this promise extends to all martyrs in all times against every beastly power with its pseudo-religious propaganda. We see today that there's always an alliance between political state powers and false religions. And this is a very, if we had eyes to see the way that Revelation gives us eyes to see, we would see darkness in a lot of places that might approach us as if they were places of light. Be very careful about this. False religion is a very dangerous thing. But the church will be triumphant. But it's triumphant not because it takes on beastly tactics, but because it takes on Christ-like tactics by giving their lives, by being faithful to the point of death and trusting God is sovereign, God will exalt us, and our blood will conquer all the forces that have been lined up against the church. No weapon formed shall prosper. This is the promise, and this is the message given to us in Revelation 13.